The following audio is from Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in becoming a part of our extended family, visit midtowncolumbia.com slash partner. Y'all glad to be here? Worshiping with us. Amen. It's a blessing. If you got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 9. That's where we're going to get it started. We'll get to Mark chapter 10. Also, We'll get it started in Mark chapter 9. I wanted to uh, let you all know, I know we got some new people in the place. I'm Ant, one of the pastors here uh, at Midtown 2. Now, super glad you're here uh, worshiping with us, especially if this is your first time. We can't, we're, we're honored to have your presence with us as we, uh, as we worship uh, the Lord together. Also, uh, we are uh, starting the year off the way we uh, kind of have been doing it the last couple years uh, with a, a Serve the City weekend coming up. So as a, as a church and as a family of churches, me in Midtown 2, now, uh, where we are, and also our downtown and our Lexington churches, uh, we want to focus on uh, serving our city. Jesus called when he was teaching his disciples how to pray. Uh, he said, "Pray, um, your will be done. Your kingdom, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." And so we we desire to see our city look more and more like heaven every day, look more and more like the kingdom of God every day. And because of that, uh, we serve. We we want to serve our city. So this weekend. Uh, we are going to be doing some special events uh, through our, our partnerships with uh, a few organizations and ministries in the city that we partner with all year long. But this, this coming weekend, starting uh, this Friday and going on through Monday, uh, we're going to be doing um, quite a few different events with each one of them. I want to run through just kind of our list of the organizations that we partner with real quick, just so you'll have an idea of who we'll be serving with. We, we partner with Palmetto Health Children's Hospital. Uh, we serve patients and families who are, who are hospitalized and experiencing ongoing medical uh, treatment, especially for children, obviously. Uh, we partner with Transitions. Uh, they serve residents who find themselves in a homeless uh, situation. Uh, Homeworks for America. Homeworks serves the poor, widow and el- widowed, and elderly uh, in our community. They've even done some stuff here in Pinehurst and along Two Notch Road. Uh, poor, widowed, and elderly in our community with home repairs. Uh, that they are unable to accomplish on their own. So people who need assistance with, with various home repairs, um, that's what Homeworks for America does. We partner with them. We partner, partner with the Ezekiel Center. Uh, they serve uh, at-risk youth who attend the Ezekiel Center for after-school help. They also do a lot of good mentoring programs there. Uh, we also partner with uh, Department of Social Services, serving clients, that's families, children, and foster parents uh, who are in the foster care and adoption system. So from the children to the parents and the staff that are there, uh, we partner and, and serve them. Uh, also, Epworth Children's Home, uh, serving residents, um, students who have either temporarily or permanently been removed uh, from their homes. Uh, and also, we partner with the elementary school that's closest to here, which is Carver Lyon Elementary. Uh, we mainly want to uh, help children who are um, a little bit behind in, in reading and trying to help them be on, on grade levels, especially third grade, uh, third grade students. So we partner with these, uh, these organizations, these ministries, some of our ministries, uh, all year long. But uh, in January, we always pick one weekend where we say we want to uh, basically send all of our members and any, even any visitors as well. So if you're a member, we want to invite you to sign up. You'll be able to do that after our worship gathering here today. I want to invite you to sign up for one of the many events uh, that we have. Again, we want to see our our city look more and more like heaven every day. We know in heaven everyone is taken care of. Everyone uh, is good and cared for because of the love of our God. So we want to be an extension of his love in our city. So we want to go and serve uh, our city. Jesus is going to give us some words on what it looks like to actually serve and be uh, a servant. Again, that's in Mark chapter 9. We're going to start it at verse 33. Mark chapter 9 and verse 33, I think this would be a good setup for um, our Serve the City weekend to just show us how much, of a, how much it's on Jesus' heart that we serve and even how he, how he communicates that to us. And also at the end, we're going to make a little bit of Midtown Two Notch history, but I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 33. So basically, 
Jesus is going to challenge us a little bit, give you some context. Jesus' disciples have been arguing as they've been traveling. Obviously, Jesus knows exactly what they're arguing about. Uh, so he, he wants to confront them uh, on their argument. Mark chapter 9, starting verse 33. He asked them, what were you arguing about today? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. I don't know if you've ever been in this type of situation, you and your siblings or, or whoever, you've been, you've been talking about something, and then your parents are like, so what, what are you guys talking about? And everybody just does this. And nobody says anything, right? You, you're anticipating some type of trouble, some type of, I think, we're, I think we're about to get it. Verse 35, he sat down, called the 12, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus like, what are you guys arguing about? Awkward silence. Then Jesus says to them, whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. Again, key to notice when they were arguing, they weren't arguing about what, is, what does it mean to be great. They were arguing about who was the greatest, a comparative level of greatness, right? And we're just arguing about who's good at this, who's good at this. It's like, no, I'm greater than you and you're not greater than me. So there's this arguing that goes back and forth. I don't know if you ever uh, hung around a, good, a, a group of guys and seen that before. But this is, what, this is what is going on. This wasn't just about personally achieving some level of greatness. This, they wanted a level of greatness that was comparably better or greater than everybody else. And so they were arguing about it. This, was, this is a, at the heart of it. A, I, I, I only feel content about myself when I see myself as greater than you. Right. So this, this is the level of this is not just I'm content if I'm doing a good job. This is like, no, no, no. I want, I want to be better. I want to be greater. I want to be at the top. Truth is, I think this argument that the disciples are engaging in, I think we see it everywhere, all the time. Let me tell you how I see it in my home. I have two boys, uh, they're twins, four years old, it'll be five this month. Uh, they so hate not being the best. I mean, I've, I've never seen it ever before, except when I do it. Uh, I've never seen it to the degree that, that, that they do it. Let me tell you what they do. They like to race each other. But because they both hate losing so much, you're going to think I'm making this up. I am not. They will come to a mutual agreement before the race that we're going to tie. In a competition, they so hate seeing anybody else as greater or better than them that they go into a competition saying, we're going to pretend to compete, but it's going to be a tie. These are four-year-olds. They don't, they don't like feeling like anybody is greater than them. So you see this on board. I mean, they do this with, with racing. They hate losing. We have, we have, they got Monopoly Junior for Christmas. Hate losing. I mean, it's like $1 bills. Hate losing. Absolutely hate it. This is me in middle school, wanting to make better grades than everyone else so I can feel like I'm the smartest, right? This, this desire to be the greatest, this desire to be on top. This is parents who get, who get you've seen them parents who get just too carried away. It's like T-ball for six-year-olds. You need to chill out. <laughs> like you, can, you ain't got no business cussing out the referees or the coaches or anybody because these are six-year-olds playing T-ball. But it's this desire for, for us and even those who we are most associated with to be Great to be the greatest. You ever seen an argument on social media where it starts out as two people disagreeing about a topic, but it ends as two grown-ups just insulting and being condescending to each other at the end of it? This is this desire. No, I, I have to be condescending to you because i got to be on top. right? We, we, we already said we're, we're, in, we're in opposition in some way. We have a disagreement. I need to be on top, so I'm going to put you down. I'm going to be condescending or insulting towards you. This happens all the time. It's not just that we want to be good or do well at what we do, but we want to be the greatest. We want to be on top if we're going to be real about it. 
And here's what trips me out about this passage probably more than anything else. I think it's the most intriguing thing. What was Jesus' response? What was Jesus' response? If we look at verse 35, he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. My thought was Jesus would be like, this is ridiculous. You are grown men. Why are you arguing about this? Why are you arguing about who's going to be the greatest? He doesn't do that. He sits down. He calls them closer. And he says, whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. This statement is crazy in a way because it affirms the pursuit of greatness because he doesn't just tell them to stop caring about being great. He directs it. He gives them some, some guidance and some instructions on it. It's as if he's affirming this desire to be great, but he, he, he reverses the way that they see it. And he tells them how to actually achieve greatness. It's kind of like, uh, let's say you get in a fight at school when you're, when you're young. You go, you go home, you got to tell your dad, you think your dad's going to be real angry uh, about getting in a fight. And so again, these disciples, you see from their silence, that there, there, there seems to be some amount of intimidation, some amount of fear about them actually talking uh, to Jesus about this. And it's like you go to your dad and you've been in a fight and your dad's like, well, did you keep your left hand up when you threw your right? Because if you keep your left hand up, you can, you can defend yourself while you're, while you're in the fight. And it's like, whoa, I thought, I thought this was the point where you rebuked me for, for what I was doing. Jesus doesn't rebuke them at all for pursuing greatness. He doesn't rebuke them at all for trying to be the greatest. He says, this is how you do it. You're going about it all wrong. He's like, it's okay that you want to be great. You got that drive to want to be the greatest. You got that ambition about yourself. That's good. Okay, let's do it. But first, let me tell you, let me tell you how this is done. You got to understand first, and the kingdom is, in, is, is backwards. People often call the kingdom of God the upside-down kingdom, that the way to be the highest is the lowly road. It's the humble road if you actually want to be seen as great, if you actually want to be seen as the greatest. It's those that are last that are first. Jesus just redefined kingdom greatness. He continues to teach this concept to him in chapter 10. So let's jump down to chapter 10, verse 35. Shouldn't have too far to turn. Seems like the disciples, as they normally do, they don't get it. Jesus said at one time, they, they don't get it whatsoever. Next chapter, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So they start off going to Jesus, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we tell you to do. Verse 36, and he said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? It's like, okay, I'll play this game. What do you want me to do? Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. All right, so this is James and John. James and John are our brothers. Uh, they grew up as fishermen. They were fishermen. They fished with their dad. So these are, I think, of hardworking, likely really strong uh, blue-collar uh, guys. They, they work with their hands. They, they threw out these big nets and caught all these fish. So these are some uh, some strong dudes probably would have been seen as very, very masculine in their day. They come up to Jesus. We want you to do what we say. And when you get your kingdom, we want to be at your right hand. And we want one of us to be at your right, one of us to be at your left. And you got to understand, uh, in, their, in their concept of a kingdom, they knew Jesus was going to be king. So it's like one at the right, one at the left. It's like we are top two guys. We're like your top two generals in your kingdom is what we want to be. This is what you want, that's what we want you to do for us. We want you to put us above everybody else. Me and my brother, we on top. Everybody else is under us. Verse 38. It's a very, very bold request. Very bold request. Put us above everybody else. Let us be your top two guys. Verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized 
with, now Jesus gets more pointed with them in this one than he did with the last one. I'm, I'm assuming it's, it's got something to do with, with the boldness of this, of this record. It's one thing to say, I want to, I, want to, I want to try to achieve greatness and strive towards greatness. It's another thing to say, Jesus, you should, you should put us above everybody else. Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. He just told them a, a chapter ago that the greatest will be a servant and you have to be last. Now he goes, he's going to explain this in a little bit more detail. Now, when Jesus is talking about this cup, when he's talking about this baptism, he's not talking about a, a physical, like, literal cup and a physical, literal baptism. Jesus, at this point, had already been baptized, right? So he's not getting baptized again. He's not talking about being uh, baptized in, in the Jordan River as he had been before. But in the, in the Old Testament, you see this theme that there's this concept of the cup of God's judgment or the cup of God's wrath. You see it in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, uh, when, before God would bring judgment to, to a nation or to a group of people, he, he, would, he would refer to it as the, the cup that he's going to pour out or the cup of his wrath that they are going to have to drink. So what Jesus is referring to when he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink from or be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with, he's talking about his suffering that he's going to endure on the cross to save his people. He already told them, if you're going to be the first, then you have to be the servant of all. He's about to serve his people in the most mind-blowing way in the history of the universe as God himself is going to die and be crucified at the hands of sinful people as he serves his people so that we can be saved. He was like, are you prepared to drink that cup? You want to be the, you want to be the number one or, or right under me? Are you prepared to drink that cup? Are you prepared to be baptized with the same baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Are you prepared to suffer for our people, for our kingdom, the way that I am prepared to suffer for. We see Jesus talking about this cup in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's talking about this cup he's going to have to drink, the suffering that he's going to have to endure to save all of his people in his kingdom. He said, you want to be great. Are you willing to really be a servant? Are you willing to suffer and sacrifice for the cause, you want to be on top. Are you ready to die and suffer as I am? Verse 39, they replied, we are able. Are we right or die, Jesus? We down for whatever. Whatever, bring it on. We, we ready. We right here. We are ready. Verse 39, then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus knows something about these disciples that they don't know. Because so, it's true, they're not ready at this point because they're all going to run away from, from Jesus when, or, or abandon Jesus when he is taken away to be crucified. So they're not really ready to drink the cup. But what he knows is after he is resurrected from the grave and after he charges and challenges them again, that those two will also be martyrs for the faith as well. James, many believe, was the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred for the faith. John was, was beaten for his faith, and he was exiled and died in exile away from his people, those that he, he loves. He tells them, you don't know what you're saying, but you're right. He tells them, you will suffer tremendously for the same cause. He's like, but well, what you're asking, that's, that's not mine to grant, which means it certainly isn't their place to assume that they should have that position if the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, wouldn't. It isn't his to grant. Verse 41, 41 when, the ten, when the ten heard this, so the other disciples are hearing this whole exchange that's going on. James and John, these two brothers, they go to Jesus. We want to be on your right hand. We want to be on your left hand. We want, we want to be your top two guys. We want to be above everybody else. Verse 41, when the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. They hear all this going on. They get, they get angry. I think one uh, translation says they get indignant 
about it. They're fired up, heated. Verse 42. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. I'll explain that in a second. Those whom they recognize as their leaders lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. This is really sharp. This, these are harsh words from Jesus. The disciples at this point in time are, are, being, are currently under an oppressive government, which is the Roman Empire. Right? So when Jesus is talking about Gentile tyrants, the disciples have, have a perfectly clear picture of what a Gentile tyrant is as the Roman Empire is, is oppressing them extremely harshly at this time. And in fact, they're looking to Jesus, they're expecting Jesus to free them from that uh, oppression to Rome. So when he tells them, hey, this, the, the way that you're kind of going about this for a selfish gain, that's what the Gentile tyrants that you hate are currently doing. They, they, they lord it over. When Jesus says they lord it over you, this is this selfish, self-serving form of, of leadership where I want to be on leadership for my good, for my gain. Obviously, Jesus is calling them to the opposite. He's calling them to, if, if you want to be great, you want to be first, and you, you need to be a servant of all. You need to put other people's cares, other people's comforts above your own. Jesus says this, this selfish ambition towards leadership, towards greatness, if you would, you're sounding a lot like those that you hate. You're sounding a lot like the ones who are actually oppressing you right now, who you see as absolutely evil. Jesus is coming straight for him. He's saying what they're doing is not too different from what you're currently seeking to do. Verse 43. He's referring to this, the way that the tyrants lead, the, the Gentile tyrants, the way they're leading harshly. Verse 43. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. He's repeating himself. Verse 44. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be servant of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying in our kingdom, that's not how we go about leading. It's not, it's not for selfish gain. It's not for yourself. There's no leadership position in the kingdom of God or in the church specifically that should ever be given out because somebody wants a position, somebody wants a title, somebody wants recognition, somebody wants some type of power for themselves. No, 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 no. The, 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 the desire of a leader is the desire to be in a, in a greater uh, position of authority to be able to, to serve people in a greater way, right? The, the, the higher leadership position you're in, the greater your ability to serve a larger group of people. If you want to be first, if you want to be above everyone else, you must become the servant of everyone else. He's saying because the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself when he says Son of Man, didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus shows his greatness. He shows that he deserves to be the king in this kingdom. Because he gave his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is, 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 is a payment that is made to, to free a person or a group of people from captivity. The Bible says, says all people, Jesus says, he who sins is a slave to sin. The, the, the biblical narrative, the biblical picture is everybody since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden have been captured by sin. We, we, are, we are captives to sin. That sin isn't just individual things that we do, but, but sin is something that, that, that holds some amount of power over us. Outside of being rescued by Jesus, sin holds a, a power over us. It holds us captive. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, he says, the thing that I want to do, I do not do. But the thing that I do is the thing that I hate. 
Right? We've all experienced that in some way. Jesus refers to that as captivity to sin. And Jesus says, I came, I didn't come for the people that I, that I see down here to serve me. I came to serve them and give my life as a ransom. He's saying, I'm going to offer the most valuable thing in the universe, which is myself. I'm going to offer my life as the ransom to free my people from this captivity to sin. Sin has captured us and caused us to do what it wants us to do. Sin has captured us and and outside of Jesus Christ has determined our eternal fate, which is condemnation away from God. If we don't submit and turn to him, sin is a slave master. And Jesus says, to free my people, I'm going to lay my life down. And he says, that's what greatness looks like. I'm going to sacrifice myself for the good of others. I'm going to put my comforts, I'm going to put my desires, I'm going to put my preferences for myself. I'm going to put those aside, I'm going to push those away, and I'm going to give my life away to serve others. That is true greatness. Jesus, the king in this kingdom that he's explaining to them, displays his greatness through lowly, painful sacrifice for others. Doing the type of work that no one else would have want, wanted to do. You want to know if somebody is a servant? Ask them to do something nobody wants to do. See how they respond. And they're like, no, get somebody else to do that. You're not a servant. You don't get it. You're not, you're not pursuing following Christ in, his, in, in how he pushes us towards greatness. Or we're not pursuing his greatness. Jesus did what he knew needed to be done. What he knew no one else, not only wanted to do, no one else could do. And thus we get how kingdom greatness works. The great ones are willing to do the things that everybody knows needs to be done, but nobody wants to do. Left the comforts of heaven to be born in a small town of Bethlehem. Left the place where he was worshipped by angels to go to the place where he would be crucified by the very people he created. He came to a place where he would do nothing but offer life to those that would cause him his death. He came to a place where he knew he would never receive the treatment he was truly worthy of, yet he was willing to suffer for the good of that people. That is what it means to be first, and that is what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. And that is why he is the greatest. That is why he is the one that we follow. You want to know if you're a servant? Just as I said, Jesus went to a place where he knew he would be treated. He he knew he would never be treated the way he was worthy of. See how somebody responds when they're they're not treated the way they're worthy of being treated or the way that they believe they're worthy of being treated. You can tell if someone's a servant or not when they get actually treated like a servant. This word servant that Jesus is talking about, like this is this is the uh, you see the example when Jesus washes his disciples feet. That was, it was a lower class, like the, the way the class system was set up at that time, the, the lowest one, the least respected were the ones who would wash the feet of the masters in the house. And Jesus flips it on the night before he is taken away to be crucified and he washes his disciples' feet. So these aren't just words for Jesus. These, this is him showing them what it's actually like to be great in his kingdom. If you want to know if you're truly great, if you want to know if you truly live the life of a servant, Look at how you respond when someone treats you as a servant. When someone asks you to do something and doesn't say thank you. And they just expect you to get it done. How do you respond? If you truly embrace your identity as a servant, you're just like, I didn't do this to get thanked anyway. I was doing this to bless people. I didn't do this so you, so you could thank me or give me some type of reward for what I'm doing. I did it because I love people and I serve people following the model that Christ has set for me. If you want to know if you're truly a servant, how do you respond when you are treated like a servant? When you're treated like the expectation for you is to serve, 
Like that's the bottom level of the requirement of you participating in what we are doing. Is that you would be a servant. Jesus models this beautiful picture of service for us, but at the same time, we pursue greatness in so many vain, trivial, and petty ways, I would say. We try to be the greatest when, you ever seen somebody, uh, I'm sure nobody, else, nobody here does this, uh, when someone tells a story that's funny, they got to tell a funnier story? That's pursuing great. I, I got I to be on top. I got I to outdo you. I got to one-up you, right? I got to be above you. And we, we flip it and do it the other way, too. Somebody tells a story about something that was difficult for them, and they got to tell a story that was, that was worse for you. You're still trying to elevate yourself over others. We're still trying to elevate ourselves over others. You can do the same thing with accomplishments. Somebody says, I did this. Well, I did that. Just kind of better than what you did, so you should probably just chill out. trying to be the greatest, trying to pursue greatness. We try to do this by being the smartest, the coolest, the funniest person in the room. This is why we just can't not get the last word in that argument. We just can't not get the last, because we, we got to be the one that ends this thing, because we got to finish on top. We can't end finishing like you're here and I'm here, right? No matter how much harm it does to the relationship, no matter how much harm it does to the marriage, no matter how much harm it does, I got to get the last word. I, I need to be on top. I need to be first. This is why we can't admit we're wrong in an argument. See, here's what's at the heart of it. We think we have something to gain by being seen as the greatest one in the room. We think, we actually, we think we're actually gaining something by, by feeling like we're on top of other people. And Jesus says the way to actually gain greatness is to be the servant. To be first, you must be last. This is why we can't admit we're wrong in an argument. This is why for me in an argument, the hardest thing to say and, and oftentimes the most beneficial thing for me to say in an argument, especially with my wife, is you're right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? The hardest thing to say in an argument. Why? Because we want to be on top. Because we want to be the greatest. That's admitting fault. That, that's admitting, okay, you're, you're, in this situation, you're right and I'm wrong. And we, we, we feel like that, that affects our status as a person and who we actually are as a person to admit that we were wrong in something because we have this inner desire for greatness. When Jesus said that desire for greatness isn't wrong, you just go about it the wrong way. Our sin perverts our desire for greatness and causes us to pursue it through our pride instead of pursue it through humility as Jesus did himself. Some of us lose our minds and become completely different people whenever we're in a competition with somebody. You're a completely different person. I don't even know who you are. I didn't know you could talk like that. Who are, who are you? You're in a competition with somebody, and all of a sudden, you, okay, you're a nice person. You, you, with your words, you generally speaking, don't cut people down. You generally speaking, don't do your words to intentionally offend someone. You generally speaking, don't use your words to take jab at somebody. Let Monopoly come out. Totally different. Like, I don't even know who you are. Like, I'm just entertained by what's going on right here. I don't even care about winning no more. I'm just entertained. Lose our minds. Why? Because we think that's the way to greatness. We think to be great, we have to push others down. Jesus says to be great, you push yourself down. If you truly want to be great. Jesus says greatness is not through our pride. We don't achieve greatness by condescending other people, condescending our competition. And some of us, and here's, uh, hear me on this. This is something that's, that's really on my heart. Uh, some of you have heard me say this before. Uh, when we come together as a church family, 
It is for the purpose of edifying the body of believers through fellowship and love with each other. And sometimes I'm like, we don't need to compete at anything when we, when we come together for fellowship. We don't need to have any games because I often see more tearing down than I see of building up because our desire, our perverted desire for greatness actually ruins what we're trying to do with the whole event. Does that make sense? We're trying to come together. We have games and stuff. And it's like, y'all just fell out with each other. This completely defeats the purpose of what we're trying to do. This completely defeats the purpose, this perverted pursuit of greatness. This perverted view of what it truly means to be great. So sometimes we try to be, pursue greatness by pushing others down, pushing ourselves up. But sometimes we try to pursue being great by connecting ourselves with something that we consider to be great. Right? So um, this is why some of us, we absolutely, must, <laughs> we absolutely must talk down to any person who represents any team that threatens our team's greatness. We absolutely must talk down. We got to get a subtle jazz. We have to do it. It's like we don't have the, the ability not to because we so long to be seen as great. And that only happens if what we're associated with is seen as great. It's the same thing with the parent, with the, with the kid who strikes out and he's cussing out the referee because it was a ball when the referee said it was a strike. It's the exact same thing. You, you feel this need to be associated. We feel this need to be associated with greatness because then we feel we have achieved some type of personal greatness. When Jesus comes and associates with the lowly, and that displays his true greatness. That displays his true greatness. I'm going to be real with you. This happens in the church. People come in. Who are the leaders? Who's the pastor? Okay, that's who I want to be around the most. That's who I want to spend time with. That's who I want to rub elbows with at the expense of the new people who are on the fringes of the church, who don't, who don't know anybody, who aren't as connected but it's like, no, no, I'm going to spend so much of my time with the ones that, 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 that are kind of in a higher position in the church because then I feel like I'm a little bit higher if I'm with them. And the newer people are coming around and feeling neglected and feeling like they can't get into this circle that's so tight because we're trying to pursue greatness by pushing ourselves up. And Jesus says, no, you pursue greatness by pushing yourself down. We compare, our possessions, we compare our possessions with other people's possessions, cars, houses, our outfit, whatever it is. We, we want to... Pursue greatness outside of the way that Jesus calls us to. In our world, so many, so many have gotten into positions of leadership and power as a means of trying to be great. Man, let me say this for our church. Miss me with anybody who is trying to be a leader in our church to pursue a title, to pursue authority or power, to pursue a greater status, to pursue any type of recognition or any type of personal gain. We just don't have time for it. We just do not have time or room for that. Give me the person that says, I just want to serve. I'm willing to sacrifice whatever. I, I just want to serve. How can I help? How can I help our church be healthier? How can I help our church progress in the gospel and be stronger? That's greatness. That's the one I want to lead. Give me the ones that will do the, one, do the things that everybody else doesn't want to do, even though everyone else knows that it needs to be done. That's greatness. That's the greatest one in the room. Give me the ones that say, just tell me how to serve, and I'll be content with that. Greatness. Give me the ones that just love people and will see a position of leadership as an opportunity to love and serve people better and love and serve people more. That is greatness. I've had people come to me before, uh, coming in and around our church, and I, I feel called to be a leader uh, in the church. And I'm like, I like that. That's great. Are you in a life group? And if they say yes, I'm like, all right, here's what I would love for you to do. This is what I often say. Here's what I'd love for you to do. I would love for you to serve that life group. 
and help that life group be the healthiest group of believers you've ever seen before in your life. And sir, in, in, whatever, way that, in whatever way that looks like, however, however you can go about doing that, serve those people in that group. And if they do any amount of, oh, no, I'm called to something greater than that. Okay. Not ready. Not ready to lead. If they have any amount of pushback to something that they feel is not a worthy task for them, I know they're not ready. Because the great ones in the kingdom will model the greatness of the king. Hear that. The great ones in the kingdom model the greatness of the king, which was shown through servanthood, which was shown through sacrifice. You want to talk about doing a task that's not worthy of you? Jesus, when he, after, after he was beaten, after the crown of thorns was put on his head, he was crucified naked on a tree. The only person who has, ne- who has walked the earth and never sinned, God himself being crucified, willing to do what was not worthy of him for his people. This is the model of greatness that we follow. If you're not willing to push yourself down to do the lowly task, you're not ready to lead. You're not ready. The great ones in the kingdom will model the greatness of their king through lowly sacrificial, cir- sacrificial service of others. Excuse me. Miss me with anybody that's trying to be a leader for their own personal gain. Give me the ones that want to lead so that others can gain. Those are the leaders that we need. I remember when I was in middle school, uh, middle school, high school, something like that. If you were to ask me, like, who was the greatest ones? Like, who was on top in the school? I, I probably wouldn't have known how to articulate this, but I probably would have said, it's obviously the popular ones, right? The ones who are really good at sports, the popular ones that, sit, that try to sit at the same table, to hang around each other, and they're kind of all jockeying for a position for who's the most popular one. Um, and I'm probably like, yeah, it's, it's, it's those. It's, it's those. I probably, I probably would want to be seen around them. But if you really think about what greatness truly is, and I think if we, if we see this, we would all know it. The greatest one in the middle school or high school is the one that can go to the one, the one who's confident enough, the one who's secure enough, that can go to the one that no one else wants to hang out with and sit at their table. That's greatness. The one that can see the lonely and insecure ones and say, hey, I, I, I want to spend time with you. I want to get to know you. I want to invite you or I want to sit at your table. The ones, that, the ones if, we, if we can be real, who, who always don't smell great in school or wherever you are. The ones who others would naturally avoid. The great ones can say, yeah, I want to spend time with this one. I want you to know that you're loved. I want to give you dignity as a person. I want to let you know that you are cared about and that you are seen in this group of people. That's greatness. The ones who are insecure, sitting at the same table, just trying to outdo each other, that's not greatness. That's weak. That's weak. What takes strength is when you can go and befriend the one that no one wants to befriend. Where you can go and associate yourself with the lowly. That takes strength. That takes greatness. That is beautiful. Greatness takes the, the lowly road, and those who take that lowly road will find that destination of greatness. The great ones are the one confident enough to stand up for the one that's getting bullied. That's greatness. And our church will only be great if our members are great. Our church will only be great if our members are great. Are great. If our members are those that say, the way I serve is not about my preferences. The way that I serve is not about what I just feel like doing at the time. The way I serve is based on the example that was set for me in Jesus Christ. That's greatness. And our church will not be great if our members are not great, including myself. Include myself in that. One of the things that makes me feel the best as a pastor is seeing, is seeing greatness in so many different ways in our church. And I have seen it in many ways. 
Uh, I want some of y'all in the room to do me a favor. I'm about to embarrass you. It's going to be great. Uh, if you are in regular kid town rotation in our church, if you serve on a monthly, at least a monthly basis-ish, or on a monthly basis in our church in kid town, will you stand up? Can we make noise for our kid town volunteers? Can we make noise? I want to honor... I want to honor greatness. And here, 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 here's why I say that. Here's why I say that. Um, it is one of the most thankless jobs. Many of the people who just stood up, uh, this might be the only time this month you see them in a worship gathering. Because many of them serve at least two times a month in Kid Town. Right? And which means, and, and obviously there's travel, there's, there's always different reasons when people aren't here very frequently, even though I think pretty much everybody who stood up is pretty consistent being here. But they often come in, to a worship gathering one time because they know if they stop, our kids will not be being discipled on, on Sundays. We, we will have no kid town ministry, no, no children ministry on Sundays. If we're being honest, it's something that a lot of people don't desire to do, but they're saying if it needs to be done, I am willing to do it. They model greatness for us every Sunday in a quiet and humble and oftentimes thankless way. Every Sunday. Every Sunday. Greatness among us. Humble, quiet, unnoticed by many, not expecting a thank you or a hand clap or anything like that. Greatness. Absolute greatness. To conclude our time today, I also want to highlight a couple other uh, individuals in our church that I believe since the beginning of our church have displayed greatness in some amazing ways. Uh, the Bible talks about, talks about describing honor where honor is due. I want to use some of the rest of our time to, to do that today. And I'm also about to make them both very uncomfortable. It's also going to be great. Uh, tell you a little bit about my schedule. I have two unscheduled meetings every week, two of them. Every week. I say unscheduled because you won't find them on my calendar, but I, but I say they're meetings because they, they happen everywhere. I get a phone call between 8.30 and 8.45, two times between Monday and Thursday, every single week. The reason I get those phone calls at that time is because that's the time when Tremont is on the way to work. And twice a week, unscheduled, unprompted, Courtney, stop, unscheduled, <laughs> unprompted, I get phone calls of, man, I think this is the way we can grow as a church. And I think, I think if we started doing it this way, I think, I think it would really help us be more, more healthy, really, be, really grow as a Jesus-centered family on mission. And, and so here, here's, here's what often happens. When people have a problem with the church, here's what often happens. People either don't say anything about it at all and get angry about it, or people say things, but they say things people can't do anything about it, and so they're getting multiple people angry about it. Or they oftentimes say something to leadership in the church, but they don't want to be a part of the process of making it better, so it's like, you fix this. And then there are people like Tremont who always come in and say, how can I help? How, what, what can I do to help us to grow in this way? How, what can I do to help our church grow healthier? He'll call me and say, hey, man, I think this person really hurt. And what can we do? What can we do to, to, to go after them and pursue them and show love to them? Hey, man, I think this is, and, he, and he'll even be honest with me in, in areas that he thinks I can grow. Bro, what, what can I do? Can I hold you accountable? What, what, what can I do? Can I check in on you to make sure you're good? Greatness. Since joining our church, when, I first, when our church first got started, Tremont has been a life group leader, a coach, a host team member, a party coordinator, kid town volunteer, servant team leader, and one of the first people I call when I need something to be done right away. And I'd say outside of all that, he's been a source of wisdom, counsel, and accountability 
to men and women in our church, and some of you can attest to that. His model, true greatness in a way that's been an example to us all. There's another member in our church uh, that I want to recognize in a, as an individual. But first I want to say I've been a little bit frustrated with this individual. I'll tell you why. Uh, one of the things that I love to do, especially when people have been serving for a long time, I love to figure out, okay, like, what are your passions? What are your giftings? What, what's kind of like your sweet spot in serving in ministry? Like, what, what, what spot can we put you in where it's like, yeah, I will, you will flourish here. You'll feel good about it. You'll love it. So I keep asking this person. I'll say, okay, uh, well, well, what about this? Will this more so be your speed? He's like, eh, I'll do whatever, bro. Just don't put me up front. And I'll be like, okay, yeah, I, yeah, I get that. I get that. I get that. But okay, but what, what about this one? Will this kind of be your speed? Will this be like a sweet spot for you? I'll do whatever. Just don't, put me, don't, just don't put me in front and I'll be good. And I literally, I mean, literally, this happened for years. I am not exaggerating. This happened for years to the point of frustration on my end. I'm like, just tell me what you want to do. Man, I'll do whatever. Just don't put me in front. And I'm like, it took me probably three or four years before it hit me. That is his gift. The ability to be content with any role, no matter what is asked of him, is one of the most extraordinary gifts. I, I'm like, I'm the biggest idiot in the room that I never saw how great of a gift that was, we have greatness among us. Because I was like, come on, man, stop trying to be humble and just tell me, yo. Just tell me what you want to do. Mark Shingler has been a servant in our church. One of the greatest strengths, one of the greatest levels of greatness is like, I'll just do whatever is asked of me. It's a level of greatness so high that it threw me off. Like I, 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 just, I feel like I'd never seen anything like that before. He too obviously has served our church in a variety of ways that has blessed us tremendously. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to make history at Midtown too much. I'm going to ask the band to come up real quick. I'm going to ask the band to come up. There is an office, a biblical leadership position in the church that we see in the New Testament whose title literally means servant. The Greek word, if you speak Greek, I don't, is diakonos, is the Greek word. <laughs> the, leadership position, the leadership position is most commonly known in English as deacon. It comes from the word diakonos, which literally means servant. In fact, it's the same word in the book of Mark that Jesus used when he says, whoever wants, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant, diakonos, of all. These two brothers have been servants in our church since our church began. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask Mark and uh, Tremont to come to the front real quick. If you guys can stand right here and face the front. That's right. Since we have greatness among us, y'all can, can stand right here and just face that way. I'll say a few more words and then I'll pray. If y'all can stand right here and face that way. Sharp brothers. So here is, uh, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I, I've obviously known these guys for years. I obviously, I wouldn't bring them up here if I didn't attest to their greatness and their servant heart and their servant leadership. Um, we're not, we're not going to ordain them as deacons today. I'm, I'm more than anything else, I want to present them before our congregation, especially our members, and say this. The qualifications of a deacon are in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I would like for every member of our church to go and look over in your own time those qualifications. And if there's any reason that you feel like these brothers should not be deacons, I need you to let me know and let, you, let me know quick because I'm ready to ordain these dudes. All right. All right. As deacons, as deacons in our church. Here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for our church. I'm going to pray for our Serve the City weekend. Uh, and then we're going to celebrate and sing. Uh, Lord, I'm grateful, obviously, for these brothers whom you have blessed 
Lord, brothers whose lives have been changed by your service towards them. Lord, brothers who, who, who have spent time meditating on and wrestling with and understanding, Lord, how much just you have sacrificed for them. Lord, brothers who are models to us as a church of greatness. Brothers who, who I would send anyone to, if you, want, if you wanted to know what it's like to be a servant, these are two men that you should look to to see what it truly means to be a servant. Lord, I pray that you would give them the strength, give them the endurance, give them the, the, the courage, Lord, the love, the grace to continue to lead by example in our church. That they will continue to show us what it truly means to be servant leaders in your kingdom. And Lord, that we as a church, that we will recognize them as such, that we will honor them as such. Lord, I also want to lift up uh, just our time and serve the city weekend. Uh, this weekend coming up, Lord, we, we want to be serving in a lot of different ways. We want you to use it for your kingdom. We want you to use it for your glory. We want people to come to know you through it, Lord. So would you work through all of our efforts, Lord? Would all of us live as servants this weekend, Lord, to, to see our, our city, to see your will be done here in Columbia as it is in heaven? And Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be just a weekend. I pray that it wouldn't be just a few, a few days or a few events, but that our lives will be marked by the greatness of servitude as is modeled by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you grow our church in greatness, Lord, because our members pursue greatness every single day of their lives, Lord, by, by pursuing the service of others. Would you do that in our hearts, Lord? Would you make that true of us for the rest of our lives? It's in Christ's name we pray.